Well, okay, let's uh, gather around, come back together. Um, great that we have coffee. We can continue those conversations. You guys got real chatty. That's, that's great. Praise God. Um, so uh, last summer, we took a congregational survey of the, the membership, and, and one of the things that came out of it was kind of interesting. Um, no announcements. <laughs> Don't do announcements in the Sunday service. It kind of breaks up everything. So, but sometimes we do have to do one. So I have a couple of announcements just before the sermon. Um, tomorrow we'll start uh, 15 days of prayer uh, for the Buddhist world. Uh, so this is a time we'll gather uh, three times a week. Monday nights at 9 um, o'clock. Yes? 9 o'clock, Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and Friday at 7.30. And we have a Zoom link on our webpage, and you can join us uh, in those times just for 30 minutes of prayer for the Buddhist world over the next 15 days. Um, this is a great way to help our, our, the mission of God in the world. We're, we're called and asked uh, to pray uh, for these people. So as we intercede for the Buddhist world um, and if you come from one of those countries, it'd be particularly nice if you joined us so that you could uh, help us know how we can pray specifically for those countries and lands. Uh, on the 21st of January, we'll have uh, a special choir. You've seen some posters up. Uh, uh, the Korean, uh, it's mainly a Korean choir. Um, Yong Sup here is in it. And uh, Several others, men and others in our congregation are part of it. They have a full orchestra. It's a big deal. Children's choir and a whole full, this stage will be full. It's a great way to invite your friends into the church and experience a really powerful concert. They'll have a full orchestra and, and everything. So please uh, keep that on your, your calendars, 21st of January. Yeah. All right, and if you want to know any of the other events coming up, uh, check, uh, sign up for our e-news, and you can get all the details there. Okay, last week we studied uh, the passage of Elijah's kind of descent into spiritual depression and his ascent out of it, and we learned some really practical lessons on spiritual depression, how we can take certain steps to get us into this place, and how the Lord graciously ministers to us, changing our perspective or narrative as he lifts us out of these dark valley, valleys. And we notice how the whole process of, of Elijah's descent and his ascent uh, mirrors the gospel uh, in our own individual falls and restoration. But I have to confess, I missed something important, actually critically important. So I'm going to preach the passage again. And I want to thank uh, Margot, who pointed it out to me right after the service, um, that, that I missed a Christ connection, a really important Christ connection. Margot teaches Sunday school here, and this is why you need to teach Sunday school, so you can not correct, but help your pastor. And it, it also shows us that preaching is a proactive experience. You're not just passively sitting there, but like the Bereans, I pray that you're searching God's word to see what I'm saying is true. And so, uh, yeah, uh, 
this morning, we're going to revisit this passage again with a, a different set of lenses as we locate Jesus in this passage. And I believe you'll see that when we do this, we're going to get even more depths of insight that it's going to come out. Um, Javier, I think I'm getting a little feedback. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, this will be a great passage to help illustrate how to locate Jesus in any passage of Scripture. And we're going to go through some basic principles about how we can do that. But before we do that, let's prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. And I always think it's good to do that, to prepare our hearts through song. So let's uh, stand together and sing, There is a Redeemer. And... Uh There is a Now, if you open your Bibles, we're going to look at 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 13. And I'm going to read the first half, and then Ellie is going to come on up um, and recite uh, the second half for us. And since there are many new people here, when we have a recitation, we don't applaud because we want God to get all the glory. Uh, so we say, Amen. Okay? So, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18, uh, 13. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm, I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they want to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard this, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out, and stood by the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Elijah deserved your wrath and, and judgment, but you ministered to him and you showed him your grace and your care, your kindness and your gentleness. And so, Lord, with that same kindness and gentleness, we pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning, that you would send your spirit upon us, that we might also eat this bread of life and live and be strengthened. And so, Lord, I pray for your church. I pray for your people. Lord, we, we live in dire times. We do. I pray that you would give us an urgency, an urgency to serve you, to, to be consumed by you, to turn from sin, to tell others about this amazing news that we have in Christ. Lord, Use the preaching of your word today to minister to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to dive deeper into this passage. Ellie set us up very well to grasp kind of the emotional depths 
of this passage. Uh, as we go back now and review this passage, I, I want to begin this morning by showing a video which will help us have the right lens through which we can go even deeper into this passage. So if you've been here at ICF for a while, um, you've probably seen this video before, uh, but I think it, it will help set the right tone uh, for discovering where is Jesus in this passage. So cue the video. Well, there should be sound. <laughs> you didn't understand, but I. <laughs> Can you turn my? Oh. <laughs> what is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do, or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended, after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically, he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the, mate, the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God, to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, 
He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. So the point Tim Keller is making here in this passage uh, is really important for our church and, and for the way our church reads scripture. Jesus has given us a critical key for how we are to read scripture. And he himself is that key. He says, uh, as you saw behind me, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus read scripture autobiographically, meaning he read it with him as the center point of everything in scripture. And when the early Jews referred to the Old Testament as a complete whole, they would use this threefold designation of the law of Moses, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms. And when they did this, they really meant the whole Jewish Bible. And so Jesus makes this stunning claim that everything in the Bible is about him. And so if Jesus reads the Bible autobiographically, then, then we need to read the Bible as well, seeing Jesus not ourselves, but Jesus at the center of every passage. And this means the Bible is not primarily about us. The Bible is about Jesus and we read. Uh, and to read the Bible well means delaying questions about what does this have to do with me or how can I apply this to my life until we first figure out what this passage tells us about Jesus and about God's plan for this world and how this applies to him, and how this points us to him. And if we start with that, uh, what it has to do with me, then we're going to, to miss the point. We're going to relegate Jesus to, to a secondary or third place, and we're going to miss the fact that the passage is really about him. So first find Jesus, and then relate it to us. And that's why I'm going to go through this passage again this week, just to be sure that we really don't go away from this passage and not see Jesus clearly in it. So in the video we just watched with the, the sermon clip from Keller, Keller's applying a method of interpreting scripture called typology. Typology is the reading of the Old Testament with the a view to finding historical people, places, objects, events that clearly foreshadow Christ and his work. Jesus and the New Testament authors often read the Bible in this way, and they give us keys of how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, John, Jesus does this himself in, in John 3, 14 to 15. He says he compares himself to the bronze snake that was lifted up in the wilderness. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And here we see that foreshadowing of Jesus' work on the cross, a, a prototype of not the real thing, but pointing us 
to something even better. And so the New Testament refers to numerous other types of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. There there are over a hundred that you could really make a a clear case for, but there's probably hundreds more that you can uh, allude to. And one of the most consistent typologies in the Old Testament is in our passage this morning, and that's what I missed. And it's the staple of most diets across the globe, and that's bread. Look at 1 Kings 19, 5 and 6. At once, the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. This ordinary food item has an extraordinary application in the New Testament. We know that when Jesus breaks bread for the last time with his disciples, he takes the bread and what does he say? This is my body. And listen to Jesus as he helps us understand this typology in the Old Testament of bread. And in John 6, he says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread of life. And so bread is often in the Old Testament a source of salvation like it is here in this passage, a a source of nourishment, a source of strength and power, and particularly a source of fellowship with God. So then in the Old Testament, bread from heaven is always going to be a prototype for, for Jesus himself. Whether that's manna from heaven or the miraculous provision of bread that Elijah receives. And so Here we have a great set of lens to begin reading our Elijah passage with a a, a new set of eyes. And now the bread he ate is is not literally Jesus, but as we'll see, it will have a spiritual effect on Elijah, a life-giving, revelation-giving effect that enables Elijah to stand in the presence of the Lord and to hear his voice. So let's go back to our passage and and go through this wonderful passage with this Jesus-focused vision. So I want to review the broad strokes of the passage. It's great. Most of you guys weren't here last week because there was like nobody here. Um, Elijah has just slain the 300 prophets of Baal. Sorry, if you were here last week, you're not a nobody. That's that's not what I meant. Um, Elijah has just slain the 300 prophets of Baal. He's just made a demonstration of God's power. And God says to him now, go to Jezreel, all right? The very heart of where Ahab and and Jezebel's rule is. And as he comes to the gates of Jezreel, Jezebel sends him this message, right? So this is where we pick up. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid and and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush 
and fell asleep. So last week, we observed that, that in these passages, in these verses, Elijah does certain things that leads him into real spiritual depression. And we talked last week about how depression is uh, uh, it's actually a normal part of the Christian life. It's, it's something we should almost expect when we, we are really confronted with the sin and the brokenness of this world, that it's, it's okay to be uh, downcast. It's okay to go through these valleys. It's just not okay to stay there, right? And last week we observed that, that Elijah did certain things to get himself into this place. Uh, he disobeyed God's word. Uh, in verse 2, we said had, uh, at the end of chapter 18, God said, go to Jezreel. And in uh, 19.3, Elijah runs the opposite direction. He feared man more than he feared God. He was afraid and ran for his life. He was more afraid of Jezebel than of God. He, he ran away from his problems instead of confronting them, and, and he gave Jezebel uh, power to continue to exercise this authority over him. He isolated himself from others. He, he left his servant in Beersheba and went on further into the wilderness. And then he finally gave in to despair. He fell into self-pity and, and said, woe is me, right? And we saw last week that behind this self-pity, behind this woe is me attitude was a, a false narrative, a, a lie that he was telling himself. And we see this later when uh, uh, Eli cited for us, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what are you doing here? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put the prophets to death with the sword. I'm, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. But we see that this was full of half-truths. It's, it's not true. He's not the only faithful Israelite left. Uh, God uh, had 7,000 Israelites that had not bowed the knee. Uh, he's not the only prophet left uh, on on Obadiah kept a hundred prophets alive. Um, and not all the, the, mount, the altars to the Lord were torn down because they just established one at the foot of Mount Carmel. And so this is kind of Elijah's descent away from God, full of half-truths and this narrative that he's believing. And we often do that in our own lives when we fall into depression or despair. We, we have a, a false narrative that we, we tell ourselves. And so instead of trusting God when he saw these circumstances and he saw them as greater than God, instead of walking by faith, he, he walked by sight, by his own perception of the situation, by his own wisdom. And instead of fearing God, he, he feared man and he didn't trust the Lord. And as a result, he, he fell into despair. Now, how the Lord responds to Elijah's unfaithfulness is what's key. How does the Lord come near to Elijah who's on the run from doing something that God had told him to do? How does the almighty maker of heaven and earth deal with Elijah's disobedience? Well, look at verse 5. And at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And so he got up and ate and drank. 
Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. God responded to, to Elijah's unfaithfulness with faithfulness, with grace. Did God treat Elijah like he deserved? No, he came near to him and showered him with kindness and nourishment. People tend to say that the God, God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and fire and brimstone, but, but if you really read the Old Testament and consider how much patience and kindness and gentleness he treats Israel with and his servants, you'll see that the God in the Old Testament is the same God who showers grace upon grace upon us in Jesus Christ. That bread that Elijah ate was this bread of life from heaven, this nourishing place of resting in the Lord and in his strength and in his might. The bread was the grace of God. Elijah disobeyed, but God responds with grace upon grace. And when we set aside our, our pride and our self-righteousness and our attitudes that, of self-sufficiency and we begin to fall at the feet of our Heavenly Father and we say, I'm a sinful man and I can do nothing in my own power and in my own strength. That's where Elijah was. I'm done, he said. I'm done. And God meets us there with the miraculous provision of grace. And so that bread that Elijah eats is that grace that we have in Jesus Christ. When we come to the end of ourselves, we'll find that life-giving bread of life. Jesus says in John 6, 32, he says, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When Elijah comes to the end of himself, to the end of his own strength and his own might and his own power, he realizes he can do nothing, but he falls on the grace of God. And he eats this bread of heaven and he drinks from this life-giving spring and he rests in the Lord and he regains strength. And that's really the key point that I missed last week. That's, that's why I felt it so urgent to come back to this passage and to this very point that Jesus is the bread of life. That Jesus tells us that there's something significant about Jesus Jesus is to our soul what bread is to the body. Just as our body will perish without food, so also our souls will perish without Jesus. And so we ought to cherish Jesus and continually feed our souls on Jesus, the bread of life. And the only way out of our self-pity and our depressive state is not to make a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. It's not a burdensome list of rules, an endless ray of tips and strategies. There's one way out of our individual hell and sadness and self-pity. Do you know what it is? If we go back to John 6, Jesus tells us. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they ask him, what do we have to do? (laughs) What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus says, work for food that endures to eternal life. And what do people automatically respond when he says that? What do they want? They want rules. They want a list of things. They want tips. They want strategies. They want self-help books and boundaries and emotional feel-good stories because we want to do things in our own strength. We want to take control of our circumstances. We want to be strong and independent. We want a righteousness of our own making. And so it's not what Jesus meant what did he, if he didn't mean do a bunch of stuff, what did he mean when he says work for eternal life, for food that gives to eternal life? What does he require? Well, Jesus answers in John 6, 29. He says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I'm the bread of life. The thing we have to work at is to stop working. Our work is to believe, to to grow in faith, to trust him more and more, to trust in his timing, to trust in his ways, to, to fall on him when we don't understand what's happening to us, to forgive those that, that hurt us, to release them, to entrust them into the Lord's hands, to, to pray for our enemies, to entrust our past and, and our future into God's sovereign hands, to let Jesus be Lord over our anxieties and our worries about tomorrow. When Elijah came to this place of despair, I think he realizes that he'd all been doing it in his own strength, in his own power, and he's done, and he's scared, and he's at the end of himself. And here he stops and rests and admits, I can do nothing but throws himself upon the grace and mercy of God. And in our dark times, we have to trust that the Lord is Lord over all of our ways. And he has good plans for us, even in our trials and even in our suffering. And that takes faith, doesn't it? We have to trust that God is in control when life seems to be out of control. We have to trust that there's a a good plan in this for for us and for others. And this is the life of faith that we're called to live. We're, we're called to walk by faith and, and not by sight. And so believing in Jesus means being satisfied with him alone, that everything could be taken from us, our homes, our livelihood, our, our family, our jobs. But if we have Jesus, if we have Jesus, we can still be sorrowful yet rejoicing. Jesus is enough, no matter what our circumstances. That is how to work for food that gives eternal life. Just as our body will perish without food, so also your souls will perish without Jesus. And so this part of Elijah's journey is is really the key to our ascent out of despair, His disobedience and his lack of faith and his fear of man led him to this point, led him to despair. But it was encountering the grace and the kindness of God in the wilderness that leads his ascent into his restoration. 
Elijah needed to go back to that place of complete dependence upon God, that all self-sufficiency was laid at the feet of the Lord. And Elijah fed on the bread of life, just as our body will perish without food, so also will our souls perish without Jesus. Now look what happens uh, in verse 8 after he eats that bread. Strengthened by that food, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? We said last week, uh, that's, that's more uh, not a geographical question as much as an emotional question. What are you doing in this place, Elijah? This bread of life that he received enabled him to hear the word of life. Because he had that bread of life, he could go and stand in the presence of God and hear a word from him. It's the grace of God that opens the way for us to know the will of God. When Christ is our strength, when he's our joy, then we're going to have supernatural power to ascend out of despair. Strengthened by that food, Elijah goes 40 days and 40 nights without food and comes to the very presence of God. And as Ellie so powerfully recited the, the rest of what happens in that episode, we'll see that the Lord comes to Elijah, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, but in the quiet, soft, still whisper. And if you go down to verses 15 to 18, you'll see where the word of God corrects Elijah's false narrative, that, that this narrative of self-pity and woe of me and faithless defeat, that he's not the only Israelite left. He's not the only prophet left. He's, there, are not, there are altars that haven't been torn down. And once we come to God's word, like Elijah, needy and hungry, then God's word will begin to correct us and it's gonna instruct us. It's gonna tear down our deceptions uh, that Satan's put in our heads. And, and God rewrites Elijah's narrative. God gives Elijah a new narrative. Truth about the world around him. Truth about the future. Truth and instructions on how to do the will of God. The grace of God enabled Elijah to hear the word of God. The grace of God opens up the way for us to know the will of God. The bread of life makes it possible for us to hear the word of life. This is the way, now walk in it. And this is how Elijah ascends out of his despair. He falls back on the grace of God and he hears the word of God. He walks in faith, he obeys the word, and he has joy and power as he experiences restoration. And so as we conclude now these many study in Elijah's descent and ascent, um, I think we learn a very important lesson for the year ahead. And what really struck me this week, and, and the reason I'm preaching it again is because I just I couldn't get it out of my heart, <laughs> is that, that, you know, just as our bodies will perish without food, so also our souls will perish without Jesus. Without the grace of God, we would be lost. We were lost. We were hellbound, And if God didn't intervene, like Elijah, we would, we would fall into despair. 
But thanks be to God, he has intervened and he gives us grace. Grace for our past sins, for our present sins, for our future sins. Just as our bodies will perish without food, so also our souls will perish without Jesus. And I think this is a truth that we can all take with us into 2023. We're all working for something. In your work and and in your personal life, work for that food that will endure to eternal life. Don't work for food that's going to spoil. The crowds ask Jesus, what do you have to do to to do these works that God requires. And he says, the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. Do you believe? Listen up. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Do you believe it? Do you really believe that he's the only thing that can satisfy your hungry soul? Then turn from your sins. Give up those sinful habits And turn away from those counterfeit gods that we all create. And trust the Lord fully, completely, with all your burdens, with all your circumstances. Instead of seeking and longing for your preferred outcome, entrust yourself and your situations into the Lord's good hands. Many of you struggle with joy in the Lord because you can't surrender your will to his will. You may be holding on to to something, to a dream or a plan, um, and it allows this dream to compete with the Lord's will for your life. So let's let loose of those things that entangle us and hold us back as we pursue Christ in the year ahead. We may fill our days with a lot of great activities and busy ourselves with many good things, But if the grace of God and Jesus Christ is not where you're drawing your strength, then everything you're doing is worthless. It's food that will spoil. Many of you have set some goals for the year, at least probably have some aspirations. I wonder how many of you have set knowing Christ more deeply as a priority for this next year. Our vision as a church is that everyone is growing And everyone is leading others to maturity in Christ. So how are you going to grow in maturity? Who are you leading to take a step closer to Jesus? We'd encourage you all to just plug into one of our discipleship groups or a small group where you can learn and grow and encourage one another and spurn one another on. A house group uh, or get, get two or three guys or girls together. Something to get you into the word every day. Ask an older person to mentor you. Work for food that endures for eternal life. Let 2023 be the year that you learn that Jesus is enough, that he really is. That you might say with David, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, if you're sitting here today and you find that your, your soul is empty and that your heart is hungry, if you find that you're working and working and working and your soul is tired and weary and empty, then listen to these words of Jesus. He's speaking to you today. He gives you this invitation. He says, I 
am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that you are the word that became flesh. And so, of course, every word in the Bible is about you. Every dot and jittle uh, points us back to you. And I pray, dear Lord, that our lives might be so saturated with Jesus in this next year that we might be full, full with the Spirit, that we might overflow with words of grace to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would use this church this year to bring many souls to you. Lord, we pray for them now already, that great harvest that you want to bring in. And so, Lord, we pray for you to begin tilling the soil, for you to begin preparing those hearts to turn from their sin and to come to Jesus. Lord, may it be this very day that someone can say, today is the day of salvation. So I pray, dear Lord, that you would do your good work in ICF this year, that you would help us to be a faithful church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing uh, song, In Christ Alone.
Next week, uh, there'll be a guest a preacher. I'll, I'll be away uh, helping my mother move house. Um, but until we return again, I'll leave you with the benediction from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.